Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. Also, if you have questions or comments for the show, please email them to us at unwind at acton.org. That's unwind at acton, A-C-T-O-N, dot org. If we read your question or comment on the podcast, you'll get a complimentary, and yes, that means free, book from the Acton Catalog. I'm joined today by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at the Acton Institute. This week, we'll be discussing the fallout from the murder of Tyree Nichols in Memphis, Tennessee, and how your boss could someday use your AirPods to monitor your brainwaves and boost your productivity. But first, let's go up, up, up in the air to talk about, yes, we are going to talk about the Chinese balloon that was the one real singular story of the last several days. Let me give a brief timeline of how this all transpired. So starting on Saturday, January 28th, this Chinese surveillance balloon is first detected over U.S. airspace in Alaska. Uh, it begins to make its way across North America. NORAD on June, uh, January 30th uh, was tracking it as it traveled into Canadian airspace. Tuesday, January 31st, the balloon re-enters U.S. airspace over northern Idaho. Uh, the Defense Department alerted President Joe Biden, who was asking the military for options to shoot it down. Uh, Wednesday, February 1st, uh, Pentagon officials were uh, reportedly alarmed as the balloon made its way over Montana, which is, of course, the home to Malmstrom Air Force Base, uh, one of three sites that operate and maintain the nation's silo-based intercontinental ballistic missiles. By Thursday, February 2nd, uh, we get a statement from the Pentagon about the high-altitude Chinese surveillance balloon being in United States airspace. Uh, and Secretary uh, Blinken decided to postpone a planned trip that he had to China uh, with senior leadership across the Biden administration uh, agreeing with that move. Uh, Friday, February 3rd, uh, the Chinese foreign ministry released a statement acknowledging the balloon is Chinese, but claimed that it's a civilian airship used to collect weather data. Big if true. Uh, and then Saturday, February 4th, uh, at 2.39 p.m., an F-22 flying at 58,000 feet shot a single AIM 9X Sidewinder air-to-air missile that took down the balloon, which was at about an altitude of 60 to 65,000 feet. This was somewhere over the Carolinas uh, when it was shot down. So that's the background of what transpired over the course of several days. Uh, we did also come to learn that during the Trump administration, there were three of these balloons that uh, went over United States airspace. Um, no uh, action was taken against any of those balloons at the time. And what seems to mark this story as being different is that civilian observation of the balloon, of course, sharing a video of it on social media, 
did prompt a whole lot more attention to this story, where presumably, as as far as I know, the three that happened during the Trump administration uh, were never noticed by civilians, or if they were, it didn't rise to the level of being elevated to real mainstream media coverage beyond perhaps some what-is-this-in-the-sky kind of videos on social media that I don't recall seeing, and I don't know if anybody else recalls seeing as well. So that is uh, the background so we'll start there, and uh, Dan, can we can we say that this is the moment where uh, Joe Biden finally declared war on inflation? Perhaps. Um, <laughs> this, um, if you think that's the last wrong, bad joke, you're kind, going wrong. Kind of inflation. Yeah, if you yeah. think that's the last bad joke you're going to get about the balloon in this episode, uh, uh, buckle up. So you know. This balloon was, of course, last seen in the classic film, The Red Balloon. Uh, The balloon was actually (laughs) white. Um, The balloon is interesting in a couple of ways. One is just, you know, as I was was reading this story unfold, I thought people are still using these sorts of things for surveillance. This is a very old technology, Um, the idea of these surveillance balloons. You know, these are first deployed in the 19th century in the context of war. Um, But we also, you know, live in a world in which, you know, we have satellite imagery and we have, you know, numerous uh, global powers that do have uh, surveillance satellites uh, in place in Earth's orbit. Um, So I'm wondering, on the one hand, you know, how much useful data beyond what one could get from satellites would such a balloon provide? And the other is, is that is this a sort of deliberate provocation? Is, Is this not so much about any you know, particular data the balloon may be able to get, but just as a way of sort of gauging American reaction. And, uh, you know, there was a very spirited public debate and the balloon was eventually shut, uh, shot down. But I think, um, you know, this calls to mind all sorts of earlier Cold War analogies. Um, a lot of those, you know, we had famously had a, a U-2 spy plane shot down by the Soviets. Um, and uh, so part of me is, is wondering, you know, is this, is this the makings of, um, of a new sort of a new sort of era in our in our existing sort of cold war with China where there will be these sorts of provocations and what should the american response be and i think i think all told it was handled well in terms of, you know, the balloon was shot down. Um, there was some concern for the safety of civilians if you were to shoot this down over a populated area. And if the balloon posed no genuine security risk, that is probably the right course of action. Um, this was over the Atlantic uh, off, of, off the coast of South Carolina when it was finally shut down. So uh, all told, I think, I think the balloon, the balloon is, is a helpful story in terms of thinking through our evolving relationship uh, that seems to be growing more antagonistic with China, but the balloon itself seems seems like merely the occasion for such debates. Yeah, this was, uh, of course, it produced the exact kind of um, political 
performance that you would expect from a story like this. Uh, um, you had the, the two forms that it came in, both on left and right, uh, which were amusing to me both. Uh, for those on the left who were at first celebrating Joe Biden's um, wisdom and resistance to all the calls by the hyperventilating people to shoot it down. And then all of those people immediately, once Joe Biden gave the order to have it shot down, switched to, of course, this was the right call to have it shot down. Um, to Dan's point about, you know, it needing to be not over a well-populated area. I mean, I believe I read that this was like the size of about three city buses. So this is this is a large piece of equipment. Uh, conceivably, it's the kind of thing that could have been shot down perhaps in certain areas over Idaho or Montana. Like if it's surveilling Montana, I hope they're willing to share all of that information with us because I'm not 100 percent sure what is in all those areas of Montana. It would be really good to find out. Uh so it, it, it is, I guess, perhaps possible that it could have been shot down earlier before it got to off the coast of South Carolina, but not necessarily so. But seeing that immediate flip was, of course, predictable and, and disappointing. And then the kind of performance art that has to happen on the political right, which is uh, every politician that you could think of shared a photo of them sitting out in some field holding some kind of a gun, apparently ready to shoot the balloon down. Uh, I, again, I understand that the point of it is performance and not to be taken seriously. But again, when this thing was shot down over the coast, coast of South Carolina, it was somewhere around 60 to 65,000 feet up. Uh, there ain't a civilian firearm that is going to be able to reach that. So again, this is just dumb performance art that really has no greater meaning or purpose other than to show apparently that they are staunchly anti-balloon, which I guess is going to be a very important political position coming up in the next election, I suppose. Uh, but to Dan's point about the provocation part of it, that is the only thing that makes sense to me, because as Dan noted, there's plenty of other ways to surveil the United States. I mean, the Chinese have plenty of satellites that are up there that can look in on different areas if they really wanted to look at the Air Force Base, where we have intercontinental ballistic missile silos. I'm sure they've already done that. Uh, and the theory that I heard uh, floated over the weekend was perhaps this is a way to incentivize the Biden administration and Secretary Blinken to cancel this upcoming meeting and have the United States be the one who makes the cancellation rather than China canceling it. Perhaps on the theory that if Blinken is going over there and offering some kind of olive branch and making the United States look like the good guy and the peace negotiators here, in, in offering it in a way that China doesn't want to accept it, that China gets this off the agenda without having to be there and uh, be the aggressor or the bad guy in that kind of a conversation. Again, we don't know that any of this is true, but it does seem to be the most logical thing that this is designed to be provocative rather than for, you know, the any of the theoretical actual purposes of this balloon surveilling, I guess, the uh, the great wide open spaces of Montana or anything else that it had flown over. Uh, I, for one, welcome our cyberpunk future. Uh, I, you know, I had low hopes uh, for, you know, fleets of U.S. Navy Zeppelins uh, filling the sky and uh, flexing American muscle. But uh, now I'm optimistic. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I would echo all that. I, 
we have satellites now. We ha- Chinese have TikTok. All of our Zoomers, you know, all they got to do is get their Gen X dads to like do a dance in the Pentagon or whatever, and they can have whatever information they want. I, it seems like there's a lot of ways that are easier to spy than like a dude in a Polaroid on a balloon. Uh, I'm sure that's not not exactly what was going on, but a balloon, really? I the whole thing seems performative to me. In fact, that's the only explanation I can think of. Because uh, I could just, like, even a plane, like, how about a plane? They're fast. <laughs> you know, like, like there's got to be some easier way than a slow-moving balloon, which would be really easy to shoot down, uh, not with a gun, uh, you know, to, to echo your point about uh, that side of it. But, um, yeah, and I, I don't even know what the performance is. You know, maybe I think there's some, some logic to that, but um, the whole thing is just kind of silly to me. Um Obviously, we should care about Chinese spying. Um, the People's Republic of China is not a free nation. It is not um, the most peaceful, although, you know, there's some very tenuous, uh, you know, peace that we have. It's sort of a new Cold War um, going on. That's where all the parallels are coming from that people are thinking of. Um, so, obviously, we, we want peace negotiations. Um, I don't know, like, even though, even then, though, like, would the average American even know about this meeting <laughs> in China? You know what I mean? Like, I don't even know who right. is who is the performance for. It just doesn't really make any sense to me. I guess for their own people, but they can just lie to their own people. They do it all the time. So I don't, I don't really get that either. Um, the other theory I have uh, is that it's just incompetence. Like, they had a balloon. Maybe it really was a weather balloon, and it got away from them, <laughs> and it drifted over Canada and down over the United States and caused an international incident. Um, I could believe that. That seems believable at this point, because it, it makes no sense to me. Why a balloon? Uh, of all the other flying craft one could choose, of all the other surveillance techniques one could choose, I don't really see the advantage. And, you know, this is just me admitting my ignorance. They're, could be someone out there that says, no, only a balloon can get, you know, this sort of information. Um, and then, you know, I'm happy to hear about it, and that'll explain everything. But uh, I'm, I've yet to encounter that in the, you know, the last five days of, you know, Balloon Gate uh, 2023. Um, and I am not very confident that it's going to come up. I think it's just this weird thing that a balloon, a Chinese balloon, drifted over the United States, whether intentionally or not. And... I, I don't really get what came of it other than that uh, these peace negotiations have now been stalled. Why a balloon is, one, it's unmanned as opposed to a plane. Um, sure. You can, have, you can have very, very serious issues as we did with the U-2 spy plane in the Soviet Union where you have pilots captured, this sort of thing. The other is plausible deniability is the fact that, you know, this was the official story to come out of China. This was echoed by, by Nicolas Maduro, which lends me to believe, to lend it less credence um, when Nicolas Maduro is, is, quickly, is quickly coming out and saying, oh, no, 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 it's just a weather balloon. Um, and that makes me think that it's definitely not. Um, but it allows, it allows that plausible deniability di- in a way that a plane simply could not. It did... Uh Give me sad and unfortunate flashbacks to 2009. Uh, if anybody remembers the now basically memory hold balloon boy hoax. 
Yes. 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 Out in Colorado, that this uh, man-made balloon resembling a flying saucer was uh, released in the atmosphere sometime or somewhere around Fort Collins. The idea being that uh, a, uh, I think it was like a six-year-old or a seven-year-old uh, was in the balloon and it became this again whole story which in a way also i can't believe it was 2009 it feels so much longer ago than that even just speaking about it now it's 2009 is is not that long ago uh but yeah i mean dan makes good points about the perhaps advantages of it being a balloon but it it there is this surrealistic element to this entire story uh, where it is just weird that we uh, had spent days talking about a Chinese balloon floating over American airspace, uh, which, again, marks it as being different, not just for the points that Dan made about it being unmanned, that there's no risk of it being like the U-2 spy plane where Francis Gary Powers is shot down and it turns into this whole negotiation over the release of uh, of Powers, um, and which was ended up being in a trade uh, for a, uh, a Soviet spy. There's a good Tom Hanks uh, movie about that, uh, if people are interested in that story. But it is, uh, it, it is just, it does strike me as just a very bizarre story. And again, I have to come back to thinking that there is some intentionality on the side of the Chinese. Of course, there's always the possibility that Dylan raised that it is just some kind of a screw up or incompetence or not the kind of thing meant to provoke the kind of action and reaction that we saw over the last several days. Um, but I, I kind of lean towards the there is a purpose for this. We may not know exactly what it is, but the the fact that it did lead to this cancellation of this visit of Secretary Blinken over to China does kind of seem to indicate to me that there was a purpose to this, even if it still does strike me uh, the whole story as being a tad bit bizarre. I mean, another performative way to think about this, um, and I, I'm hesitant to go too far down this road because I'm very anti-conspiracy theory, but uh, is to think of this like magic. Um, and uh, not to burst anyone's bubble or balloon, as the case may be, uh, but magic is uh, not real. Um, but magicians uh, do their act through sleight of hand um, and through uh, um, distraction, right? They, they, they mislead you. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Deceive. And, yeah, no, there's a, a nicer, more artful Misdirect. Word. Misdirection. There we go. Misdirection. Um, so while our news was pointing cameras up in the sky to follow a balloon, what weren't they pointing cameras at? Um, that would be the question I would ask. Um, I don't have an answer to that. Um, but I, you know, I do wonder something that I, it's hard for me to understand what real risk was really at stake. Plus, we let it get all the way to North Carolina. So unless it was, again, like spitting out Polaroid photos that it was collecting in a basket, they already got all their data. Right? They got all the way across the United States, and then we shot it down. Apparently, it wasn't considered very urgent. Otherwise, they would have just cleared people out of where it might fall and shot it down right away. Um, otherwise, during the Trump administration, they would have shot down those three balloons that came across. I'm guessing they didn't care, and that's why they didn't shoot them down. Um, so I don't know. Um, I Yeah, I, I, I wonder along those lines, but I am not in a privileged position uh, so as to know, you know, what am, I, what am I not seeing and what is the American public not seeing? I'm also wondering if this is going to start coalescing more opinion around the idea of, and I, I thought for a while that we're going to get more hawkish on China. I mean, this goes back to uh, not just what uh, Trump 
presaged, which was a at least rhetorically more hawkish position on China, even if some of the underlying choices made by his administration didn't really seem to line up with that. In way, an, an inversion of Trump had very soft rhetoric about Putin in Russia, but the actual policies of the Trump administration were pretty tough on Russia. It was a bit of the, an inversion of this with China, where his rhetoric was always very tough on China. But one of the first things that he did was to tank the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which you know I, I don't give too much credit to Donald Trump's understanding of geopolitics, uh, but was a move to lessen China's influence, not something that was to the benefit of China. And I, I don't know that President Trump ever fully grasped that. So I think the rhetoric and the actual actions of the Trump administration uh, were somewhat discordant rather than um, being aligned in the way that you think so. But I think there's also the opportunity here for for people who are interested in pushing a more hawkish line on China uh, to start coalescing opinion around that idea. One of the forms that we may see it start coming in, because this seems to me to be rather low-hanging fruit if you are in Congress and you're looking for actions that you can do, uh, which is some sort of a ban of TikTok, um, which sounds kind of ridiculous. Like, I I wonder how these kinds of uh, moments will be recorded in history books and how people will look back on it that after this escalatory balloon incident, the United States coalesced opinion around banning a uh, social media app of people doing silly dances. Um, it, It sounds very strange, but of course, when you understand the underlying implications of TikTok and I, you know, I run our marketing and communications department here, I engage in a lot of social media apps and platforms, but I do encourage people not to have the TikTok app on their phone because if you are concerned at all about the amount of data that Facebook, uh, having Facebook on your phone shares with Meta, having Twitter on your phone shares with Twitter, having Google apps on your phone shares with Google, you should be very concerned about the amount of data and information that you are sharing, not with American tech companies, but with the Chinese government, with the Communist Party of China, because while, yes, it is owned by a Chinese company, all Chinese companies ultimately are answerable to the CCP. Uh, And the philosophy of the Chinese on this kind of surveillance and data collection has changed over the course of about 20 years, where previously you would have stories about Chinese hackers trying to access specific sets and stories of data to now the philosophy being, we're just going to collect absolutely everything we possibly can, and we'll figure out when and where it is useful later. So just understand that they're not necessarily interested in what's interesting about you or informative about you or what data or keystrokes you're making now. It is for what that could mean to them in the future. So I'm wondering if we're going to start seeing some coalescing around the ideas like banning TikTok uh, in Congress, which I have decidedly mixed opinions on. This is where I get my libertarian hackles up about the idea of banning something like uh, a social media app. Um, But nonetheless, I think that probably does uh, end up being something that both parties may be willing to make some bipartisan agreement on for better or for worse. Well, I mean, I, I, I look at it this way. Just know the risk of the technology that you're using. I, I think it would be unfortunate. You know, we have a whole documentary about uh, the story of Jimmy Lai, um, and that is about 
Chinese oppression of democracy in Hong Kong and also freedom of the press. I would hate for us to actually be shutting down media outlets uh, as a reaction. Um, rather, I'd, I'd hope that people just arm themselves with the information they need to be responsible. So, you know, if, if you have uh, a device that you're not using for work or important personal information and you want to make a TikTok video, you're probably fine, right? But, uh, but be, be wise, um, just like every kind of technology that you use. Um, and I, I would hope that we don't have to go uh, to that length uh, because that would be, to me, a, a bit unfortunate um, given the, the background there. Um, you, have, you have, you know, the one Chinese TV media, you know, and everything network. In the United States, we have a million things, including a ton of a million user-created things. Um, that's a beautiful thing, uh, as much as it's a terrible and toxic thing also. But um, it's something that is is symbolic of uh, the freedoms that we enjoy here uh, that are amazingly rare in human history and unfortunately still rare for many today. Just to wait TikTok. <laughs> yeah, but it, but freely, yeah. Don't <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, get rid of it. <laughs> Let's move to our next topic, uh, which is a story that has been unfolding over the course of uh, the previous month of January, but we have uh, yet to address, and I, I did want to address on the program today, uh, which is the death of Tyree Nichols in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, another one, I'll give you a, a, a bit of a brief timeline to get you caught up if you are uh, not familiar with the story. The incident itself happened on January 7th, around 8.30 p.m. as coming from a New York Times recap, which we will share in the show notes. Uh, Mr. Nichols was stopped by police officers on sp- suspicion of reckless driving near the intersection of Rains Road and Ross Road in Memphis. Uh, Memphis police said in an initial statement that a, quote, confrontation occurred. Uh, as the officers approached his vehicle and then Mr. Nichols ran away, the police said that there was, quote, another confrontation as officers arrested him and that an ambulance was called after he complained of shortness of breath. Uh, on January 10th, uh, Tennessee Bureau of Investigation announced that uh, Mr. Nichols had, quote, succumbed to his injuries and died. What was later revealed in the release of the body camera footage uh, was that these confrontations, and I, I'm always attuned to the phrasing of the language that is used in these police reports, uh, which is very much in the mistakes were made vein. Um, The action, the actors in this are never actually described. Um, It is things happen, not people take actions. And what was revealed in that body camera footage was that uh, several police officers, as they chased down uh, Mr. Nichols, uh, beat him. Um, and that he succumbed to uh, internal bleeding related to those beating injuries. Uh, I think one of the things that we can say about this story that is uh, complicating it, at least in terms of the typical kinds of narratives that we have seen around, say, George Floyd or other incidents of uh, police actions that have resulted in the death of the person that they were arresting or trying to arrest uh, is one, the city of Memphis does seem to have moved uh, rather quickly to fire these officers and the people that were involved and they will be facing criminal charges. Uh, So there's no real delaying on the part of Memphis authorities. So on one hand, I think we could potentially look at this as the case of uh, a police department and a city acting well and doing the right thing in the wake of such a horrible incident like this. 
The other inst- uh, part of this that is complicating is um, uh, Tyree Nichols, Mr. Nichols is black, and so were all of the police officers who were involved in all of this. And when we typically talk about these stories, a racial edge, a racial angle to it is the way that it is often processed. Um, this was certainly the story with George Floyd. That is not the case here. Uh, it, it is we, we have gotten plenty of this just demonstrates how pervasive a culture of white supremacy is that even black police officers can be uh, actors in upholding a culture of white supremacy which I think quite sadly uh, borders on just the absurd when people look at it, <clears throat> that this, this cannot be the only explanation that is available to explain these kinds of awful, horrible incidents. So um, on, on that last point, and I, have, I actually have a lot to say, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of times people uh, talking past each other when issues of race come up. So when someone talks about structural racism, and I I know, you know, uh, there's no way I can talk about any of this stuff without somebody being upset at what I say. But I'm just going to say it's not so much that someone holds an opinion in their heart. Um, They're talking about uh, the laws or procedures or, you know, the structures of society uh, affecting a particular group of people adversely more than someone else. And there actually is good data that even in, uh, you know, neighborhoods with increased crime rates, whatever, when you control for that, um, African-American people are more likely to be on the receiving end of police violence, including fatal police violence. Um, so there is something to that. The, the claim would not be, oh, you know, these black officers must hate black people. Well, okay, you know, Yes or no. I mean, there are people who don't like their own people. Um, That does happen. But that's not really the claim. The claim is, why do we keep hearing about these stories? Uh, Especially, although it is not limited to, but especially, uh, you know, non-white individuals, um, usually unarmed, even if they are aggressive, it just, it always seems like excessive force leading to the loss of life. And uh, I think we should start Everyone should start at a place of compassion and instead of politicizing it, instead of finding, you know, who's who's my team and who am I going to cheer for? Someone died. Someone died who shouldn't have, even if they were guilty, even if they committed a crime, they are unarmed. There should be a way <laughs> to to, you know, in, in this case, this wasn't even like, oh, it was in the process of detaining him. They were beating him like needlessly beating him. Um, This is always one of my deep frustrations with typically the uh, reaction from the political right to stories like this, which is always, if you don't resist arrest, then none of this will happen, Um, which, you know, like like many points, it's true up till a certain point in time. The the reality, though, is also that um, while you shouldn't resist arrest, the the punishment for resisting arrest shouldn't be losing your life. Yeah, like there has to be a way to de-escalate these kinds of situations before it gets to being one of these stories that we can speak about by the name of the person because they died in the course of the interaction. Right, and just to be clear, that doesn't mean that therefore every radical solution on the left is correct. Like I'm not saying that, but we can acknowledge there's a problem here. We can acknowledge that this is just not the way uh, our police should be doing things. This is not 
acceptable in our society that we should want better. Um, so that brings me to uh, uh, Kenneth Boulding, who I've brought up uh, many times on this podcast, uh, an economist, uh, Quaker poet, uh, but also a peace activist. He participated in the, the first teach-in at the University of Michigan to protest the Vietnam War, and he wrote academically on the subject of peace and conflict and conflict resolution. Um, so I'll try to do this quickly and uh, shortly, but clearly. Um, he talks about, uh, he divides society into three different kinds of systems. There are threat systems, integrative systems, and exchange systems. Exchange systems are the market, right? You give me a dollar, I give you my product. You're happy, I'm happy. It's a win-win, positive-sum interaction. Integrative systems are things like a family. I give to my kids. I don't they don't pay me for anything. Um, I, you know, certainly get satisfaction out of being their parent, but there's no material exchange happening there. It's just me giving them stuff. Um, I'm not saying, hey, you got to earn your dinner tonight. Like, <laughs> give them dinner, right? Um, and then lastly, there are threat systems, and these are not in necessarily inherently bad either. Things like the law. If you do, you know, if you murder someone, you're going to be arrested, put in prison perhaps even executed, depending on the state. Um, there, are, there are laws for a reason. There are threat systems for a reason. Um, the police are an aspect of our threat system. They are law enforcement. Um, but what we've come across is a situation where, through a wide, complex network of things, whether it be the laws being you know, unenforceable or written poorly, you know, things like some of the, some people have been stopped for, you know, they had a headlight out or they were speeding a little bit or they were jaywalking. Just really like things that you should you should be alive after that <laughs> traffic stop and basically every case. Um, and it leads to them them dying. You know, so there's there's something where there's a pretense created by the law um, for a, a, a bad interaction. Um and then there's there's this culture, and it is it is very bad. Um, it is not getting better, as far as I can tell. Although you mentioned uh, the police officers being fired, so that brings me to he talks about the responses to a threat system. So you can have submission. So if people think the laws are just, uh, people are happy to to follow them uh, in general. If they think the law enforcement um, is equitable, um, they they're happy to submit to the laws. Um, however, they don't. Um, then sometimes you get things like defiance, where people are openly breaking laws. Again, this is not necessarily bad. Think of civil rights protests, uh, where they would openly break Jim Crow laws in order to change the national conver conversation, um, change the interaction between uh, different sides of the threat system because the laws were unjust. Um, more um, concerning, you get to things like counter threat. Um, something like, I think it was like five years ago now, there was an Afghan veteran who after some of this police violence, he was, he was African-American. He shot five officers, mm -hmm. I believe, in Dallas. I could be wrong, but yep. I know it was in Texas. Dallas, Texas, um, yes. And then there was a similar sort of shooting um, also. Um, this, this is the sort of thing that you hear about and you hear people worried about. Uh, maybe you hear too much talk about, but this idea of, you know, are people going to take up arms and, and just fight back. I mean, this is where, you know, you get a lot of the early 1990s uh, gangster rap and the riots and that sort of thing. That's where you get riots over race. Um, it's it's from this kind of response where people, they feel like they can't submit to the laws. They, you know, feel like anytime they defy them, nothing comes of it. Um, and so they have just basically no confidence whatsoever. All the integrity, all the legitimacy of the threat system is completely broken down. So you have a threat counter threat system. But lastly, and this is what Boulding uh, recommended, and this is something I hope uh, we can think about 
um, as a culture and on a policy level um, where possible is an integrative response. And what you try to do is you bring every party together on peaceful terms so that everyone can have a stake in what's going on. Um, you know, violent neighborhoods where, you know, a lot of these situations, well, not all of them, but a lot of them have happened. They want good police, right? They, they want their, their homes to be protected. They don't want to have to depend on the local gang um, to, to be their kind of black market police. Um, they want to be a community uh, with with their government, with their law enforcement. Um, and so there has to be ways to do that. One way um, is, again, uh, some more shaky studies, because these are psychological studies, and they've had a replication crisis in the last uh, several decades. But um, some studies on forgiveness have shown that uh, justice and forgiveness are not incompatible. And in fact, justice tends to encourage forgiveness. So these officers who were let go, they now... Ha- do not have the protections of being part of the police officers union and other sorts of things. Um, presumably, they can be prosecuted um, if they are. If it's viewed that they are brought to justice, people are going to uh, be a little more willing to sit down at a table and have a conversation with that police department in Memphis. Um, talk about how can we do better. Um, actually, uh, envision the possibility of the police department doing better. So, finding those ways. I, you know, I think we need to rethink uh, our first responder um, protocol uh, in our country. I know that's dispersed through all sorts of local police departments, and um, there, there's a huge issue of subsidiarity there. I would hope at least we can have a, a kind of federalist impetus for people to try. But I would love to see things like instead of sending police officers uh, when you hear about domestic abuse or there's, you know, uh, some sort of you know shoplifting, whatever, you know, something like that, uh, you find a trusted community member who, you know, hopefully has volunteered for this, has some real training, uh, but is not carrying a gun. Um, who can maybe go in and diffuse some of the heat and get people to cool down. It's not always going to work, but something where there's a buy-in, someone from the community who is not a police officer to show up and to be a mediating uh, you know, force um, could go a long way. I would love to see other sorts of experimentation uh, along those lines. Now, I'm sure if you did that, you're going to have some really tragic stories of that person you know, being the victim of violence. Um, but well, it's a good there's, remind- there's no win-win here where people aren't going to be hurt. It's a good reminder that there are no perfect solutions. <laughs> right. There are only trade-offs in everything. But there, there are no perfect solutions, but I am with those who believe that we absolutely can and need to do better. And I, I, know- and I, would, be, I would love to see people try. I will note for the record, the uh, five officers that were involved in this have been charged with second-degree murder, aggravated assault, two counts of aggravated kidnapping, two counts of official misconduct, and official oppression. Uh, So those are the charges that those five officers are facing, former officers are facing. One of the things that I think we lose track of a lot when we discuss these tragedies is that police officers are members of the community and should be members of the community, and the responsible leadership should be coming from them. We are in a bad situation when we say these cannot be responsible community leaders and we have to bring in, quote unquote, responsible community leaders. That is not the way that solutions are arrived at. That views the police as, as fundamentally hostile to the community and to community order. And there are individual cases in which that is very much true and that should be acknowledged. But 
we need, you know, to borrow the language, an integrative solution where we bring, you know, one of one of the one of the things that we haven't talked about, at least directly, is one of the reasons that these officers were let go in such a timely manner is because the police union in Memphis almost certainly did not object. Because while the union is not all powerful, the union could certainly delay such actions regarding its officers. So there's a sense in which both the department in Memphis and the union in Memphis have acted responsibly in this case in allowing this this this, this to go forward. Um, and you know, law enforcement in this country is involved with thousands, if not tens of thousands, of jurisdictions. Many of the leaders of law enforcement throughout this country are democratically elected. Many are not. Uh, many departments have, you know, records that are absolutely sterling, and many do not. Um, and we often lose sight of this because we take these cases, these individual tragic cases that have many causes, some of which are caused by deficits in police training. Some of them involve corruption or a very sort of corrosive culture, some of which are very tragic accidents. Um, and we need to rethink how we view this problem as this is a problem that these communities face and that police departments have a constructive role to play in remedying them. And often when we talk about this, we tend to create this oppositional narrative where you're either for the police or you're for the community. And that sort of thinking will only lead to further retrenchment and further pathologies both in the community and in departments, and we need to work beyond that. Absolutely. I, I would add to that there's, there's at least some um – studies that have indicated that part of the problem is improper care of officers. So someone in the morning goes to, you know, traumatic case of suicide, whatever. Sometimes in the afternoon, they're back out on the road, you know, pulling people over. This is someone who like, they need time to process. They need proper trauma care. And instead, maybe, you know, for a variety of reasons, uh, they're still out there. Um, there are other cases where there are people, a lot of times, uh, officers with past um, infractions and, you know, reports of excessive force, that sort of thing, are exactly the same ones doing it again. Um, so there's, Very much a dance of you know, the lemons yeah, and uh, it, scenario there as they is, get shuffled around to different places. Part of that is you could take a, you know, bad apples phrasing of it. I don't really, or framing of it, I don't know if that's exactly right. But when people are stressed, they lash out. Um, so why is this person stressed? Maybe they are the wrong person for the job. That I'm sure that's the case in some places. But maybe they're just not being cared for at all. And they're getting more and more cynical and they keep getting thrown into these, you know, they're seeing the worst of these communities all the time. Um, they don't feel a part, although I agree with Dan, they absolutely should be viewed as and should should be a part of the community. That's the idea of an integrative response. Um, but part of this is about proper care for our police officers as much as it is for, uh, you know, the, the people um, who have unfortunately been the victim of excessive violence from the police. 
I, I think it is certainly the case that we are asking police officers to do too much. Uh, and you couple that with stories that are understandable, again, given the circumstances of the last three, four, five years, uh, the elevation of stories like the Tyree Nichols uh, case. Um, to the forefront has led to spikes in resignations, early retirements, difficulty in recruiting for police forces. Um, That is deeply problematic. Uh, But I think I would also offer that there are certain proactive things that police departments could do to start assaging the concern that people within communities have about policing and about police officers, uh, that if both sides could find a way to work together on this, it would be beneficial. During the uh, the time we were having conversations about defunding the police, I was uh, still living in Chicago, and I remember stories and I remember survey data uh, being available at the time where they talked to people in some of the uh, the areas of Chicago where you have the most gun violence, um, the most crime. And when you ask people in those communities, do you want more policing or less policing? Um, The answer that people give is they want better policing, Uh, not that they want more or less. One of the biggest problems is the deficit of trust that exists between the police force and people in those communities. It's one of the reasons why Chicago has such a low rate of closing the homicide cases that they have is because so few people are willing to actually talk to the police because trust doesn't exist there. And while the typical narrative, which has been previously around ideas of structural racism that exists within policing or within communities has now been transformed into conversations about structural white supremacy. I'm not going to address the structural white supremacy part of all of it, in part because I don't think it is a seriously fleshed out argument enough to be seriously addressed. But the idea of structural racism of some point, one of the things that I think would benefit people on the right in particular is passing an ideological Turing test on a concept like this. The example that I have always used to try to get people to understand it is I grew up in Belleville, Illinois, which is right across the river from St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, So when Ferguson happened, I remember the narrative coming from people from the right, especially with the, the part of it that was vindicated by the report from the Eric Holder led Obama Department of Justice that found that um, Michael Brown did not have his hands up. Uh, So the hands up, don't shoot slogan, that narrative turned out to be false. And I remember making the point to uh, friends on the right that I had at the time that that's not going to matter. And I will tell you why it's not going to matter. When you go back into the history of St. Louis and St. Louis County in the 50s, when you start seeing white flight out of the city of St. Louis into suburban areas, it is a bit of a weird anachronism that there are very few rules and regulations about municipal incorporation in St. Louis County. Basically, you can incorporate neighborhoods if you can just get the proper paperwork together. And that is what happened, that people would move out to uh, the first ring of suburbs. They would incorporate these small areas, and then they would zone them for no multiple family occupancy housing. So it made it harder for uh upcoming black families or black residents of the city to move out into those same areas. And when you had enough upward mobility in the black community that they could move out in that first ring of suburbs, they went out a little further and did the same thing. I believe there's something like 110 municipalities in St. Louis County 
comparatively. In Cook County, I believe the number is somewhere around 30, 40, somewhere around there. And there are a lot more people in Cook County than there are in St. Louis County. And the descendant of all of this is you have these tiny municipalities that really do not have much of a property tax base, do not have much of a sales tax base. If they uh, are operating their own municipal budgets, they're getting a lot of subsidized funding from the county, from the state. And also from police enforcement. And for years, um, one of you had made the point, Dan, I think it was, about officers are versus should be members of the community. The reality for people in places like Ferguson are these police officers are not members of the community. They are from different areas because there's no way that you could draw enough officers for 105, 110 municipalities that all have their own independent police forces. So they come in from different areas of the city, of the county. They're not members of the community. The only interactions that these people have with them in most cases are for getting pulled over for speeding tickets, expired tags, occupancy permit violations at their homes. They're seen essentially as ATMs for the funding of the municipal operations of those uh, of those towns. So there's not a lot of trust there. Um, So. I think you can make a compelling argument that the history of racism and the actions that flowed out of it led to the current structure of St. Louis County. I think it is helpful to have an articulable case like that so that we can understand when that applies and when it doesn't seem to apply so that we can separate some of these stories out. I think that would be helpful overall to these kinds of conversations. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, one of the things, you know, I'm the grandson of a, of a police officer. And one of the things in his department that his department mandated is that officers must live in the community. And I think that that is integral to good policing is that you are invested in the community, that the community sees you not only as an officer of the law, but as an integral member of the community. Let's move to our final topic, which is uh, a, a little out there, maybe like the, um, the X-Files portion of, uh, of the podcast today. Uh, the World Economic Forum has been going on, and there was a presentation Uh, That was made there, and we'll share the video of the whole presentation in the show notes. Uh, It does kind of smack of minority report kind of stuff. So this uh, presentation about the ability for uh, wearable technology, uh, example, that wearable technology, something like your AirPods, if you use AirPods, I do. Um, They could have the ability in the future to collect your brain waves. And that that data could then be used by your employer in certain ways to make you, quote, more productive uh, and for law enforcement to perhaps prevent criminal or illegal behavior. That's where you get the minority report part of this. Um, It is it does have it smacks of that kind of dystopian uh, future that, um, you know, the, a lot of my good libertarian friends who are always tech utopian uh, orient in or their orientation. Um, but yeah, technology absolutely can use for really terrible things as well as for good things. Um, but this is really kind of a wild presentation. And again, we'll include it in the show notes for people to take a look at for themselves. So Minority Report is, of course, you know, uh, based on uh, the work of Philip K. Dick, who is 
very suspicious of technology as a rule. I wrote uh, a couple issues of Religion and Liberty. Uh, I brought sort of Philip K. Dick's work to bear on the subject of the metaverse. And I think when you look at, you know, there's this this dystopian sci-fi sort of thing. And Philip K. Dick is not a hard sci-fi sort of figure who, you know, explains all the mechanics. I am very suspicious of the ability of, t- of, of technology, at least today, to do this sort of thing, or at least to do this sort of thing in any sort of way that we don't already see it in other applications. You know, when we have employees take, you know, mandatory training sessions, the presumed idea behind that is by taking these sessions, their brainwaves are changed in such a way that they learn something that they can then apply to their jobs. So I think, I think the sort of you know, while I'm very sympathetic to those skeptical of, of, of some of these emerging surveillance technologies, I don't think we're at the place where we have to worry quite yet. Like if the government wants to listen to my brainwaves, all they're going to hear is who wants cake. Because I always <laughs> do. I always want cake. Um, I would echo some of the skepticism, but I would actually take a step back and say um, – Not that I'm not worried, actually. What I'm worried is that people will act on this thinking they have information that they actually do not. Um, You are not your brainwaves. Brainwaves can maybe tell you somebody's mood approximately. Uh, Different emotions look different in terms of brain patterns and that sort of thing. Um, But they don't read your thoughts. Um, They don't tell a why. You know, I and they they don't really get at complexity. So um, people can feel more than one thing at once, but maybe only one thing is dominant uh, in terms of an outside observer. Um, I'm thought of I I think of uh, the Apostle Paul saying, you know, who knows the mind of a man but the spirit within him? Um, or uh, uh, similarly, um, uh, Samuel uh, said to Jesse. Uh, you know, man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. Only God can see the heart. Um, and, you know, you're, you, to the extent that you know your own heart, um, can have some insight only for yourself. Um, and so what I would worry about is someone thinking, oh, we've been monitoring our employees' brainwaves or our citizens' brainwaves or whatever, and we know, therefore, they can't handle this project or they need to do this instead of just trusting them, right? It's fine to like, it's, it's great for a company to say, hey, people should get two 15-minute breaks and a lunch. That's a good policy even without brainwave data, right? There's, there's all sorts of ways you can build in breaks for people if you're worried about them being stressed out. Also, like if you're worried about, oh, you know, do these two people work well together? You could try like talking to them and asking them, do you work well with, you know, your colleague Bob or what? You know, there's, there's all kinds of like easier ways to get the supposed information that these brainwave, you know, uh, uh, what would devices <laughs> I'm trying to trying to go with a, a, a relevant word here, but you know, readers or whatever um, are giving people like talk to people, figure it out, be a good boss, uh, be a good you know, be a good government. Uh, actually, care about your citizens, actually care about your employees, um, and the way to do that is to treat them like people um, and people have to talk with other people to understand what those people are thinking and feeling. Um, it doesn't matter if you are 
measuring and collecting data on their brain waves. Um, you can do the same thing, and I'm sure there are companies out there in terms of you know keystrokes and Google searches and whatever. Um, talk to people. It's like you just I don't I I've never understood the idea that, well, now that we have this technology, it's going to revolutionize things. We already have a better technology. It's called talking. <laughs> We've had it at least for 30,000 years. I don't know, longer probably. Um, so that's my thought on it. I would be worried um, about people latching onto this, doing something with it. I'm pretty skeptical anything will actually come of it. I think I, anytime I hear an announcement like this, I think of uh, back in the 90s, there was this great show that would show like future technology, the technology of tomorrow. I can't remember the name of the show, uh, but it was like concept cars and stuff like that. And the only thing I ever remember actually happening was I, that was my first introduction to 3D printing. Was they, It was like back in the 90s, they showed somebody like doing that. And now people do that today. But everything else, none of it happened, right? <laughs> like it was, it was like the one thing out of 100 uh, that actually was predictive. And um, so we'll see, you know, maybe maybe a year from now, uh, everyone on the internet will be reading my brainwaves and be like, ha, ha, you were so wrong. Um, but even if they could, I don't think they'd actually know me. And I think that's a really important distinction to make. We are not our brains. We are not just matter. Uh, we are not just matter and energy. We have living souls uh, that make us who we are, that make our bodies alive. Um, our bodies are part of us as well. Um, but that's what we are. Human beings are body and soul. Um, and you're never going to be able to reduce the soul to some sort of material or energetic uh, component. It's just bigger than that. It's greater than that. It is the image of God. Um, and there is a depth there that cannot be uh, measured or fathomed by any human observation. If they do read your brainwaves, they may not know you, Dylan, the person, but they would know that you want cake. They would. Let's call it a wrap there and maybe go get some cake. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes where you're going to find a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Also, again, if you have questions or comments for the show, please email them to us at unwind at acton.org. That's unwind at acton.org. And again, a reminder that if we read your question or comment on the podcast, you'll get a complimentary book from the Acton catalog. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan for the Acton Institute. I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. <laughs>